You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. In Revelation chapter 5, we continue to follow along the story of the redemption of the world. And really, Revelation 5 is an exciting chapter when it comes to discovering God's plan for redeeming mankind. But before we get into it, let me remind you that the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. It tells us in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John, he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And really that's the outline for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, the things which are, uh, or excuse me, the chapter one, the things which he has seen. Uh, chapter two and three, the things which are, uh, the stuff that he records in chapter two and three, the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then chapter four and following, the things that take place after this. And when we got to chapter four, verse one, we saw that the opening line says, after this, I looked. And behold, and so John was caught up into the heavenly realm and began to record the things that were yet future. And so as I've shared with you before, I'm simply teaching this from a futuristic chronological point of view, a view in which I strongly hold, uh, believing that it's the simplest, most straightforward, clear way to interpret and understand this book. I mean, it is the book of revelation after all. It shouldn't be a hidden, veiled kind of truth. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And today we have a wonderful passage which wonderfully reveals Jesus in heaven. In chapter 4, John saw the throne room and he described it as best he could. He saw the throne of God. He saw the glory of God emanating from his throne. He saw the angels, the cherubim, flying around the throne, singing perpetually, holy, 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 as the Lord God Almighty. He saw 24 thrones surrounding the throne of God and elders sitting upon those thrones. And every time the angels sang their song, those elders would get up, take their crowns, throw them down at the feet of God and would bow themselves to the Lord and sing to the Lord and say, Worthy are, are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And so chapter 4 was consumed in heaven with the vision of God. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, John turns his attention to a scroll. It says in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or to look into it. And so John's attention is immediately directed to this scroll held in the right hand of uh, God, 
uh, as he's seated upon his throne. Now, the question, of course, is what is this scroll and what is inside of this scroll and why is it so incredibly important? Now, just cross-referencing scripture with scripture, there is the passage in Jeremiah where there is a scroll in Jeremiah that is sealed. And that sealed scroll is the title deed to a piece of property that Jeremiah now possesses that he will someday by faith be able to come back from captivity and reclaim for himself once again. And that has led many people to believe that this scroll in the right hand of God is merely the title deed to planet earth. And that the world as we know it is currently under a different ownership, but that one day the world will be reclaimed by God. And of course, that definitely fits with the account of the course of human history from the vantage point of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 refers to Satan as the God of this age. John 13, verse 31 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, verse 2 speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And you might remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan seemingly had authority over all of the kingdoms of the world, promising Jesus that he would give them to him if he would merely bow down and worship him. And so Satan is a powerful figure in the world as we know it. And I personally believe that that scroll was representative of the title deed of planet Earth, and that Jesus Christ is the one who needs to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And so John is there looking upon that scroll and he hears this strong angel. We don't know exactly who this angel is, but he proclaims with a loud voice. And we're going to have that phrase repeated for us 20 times in the book of Revelation. The, the loud voice. And the question is, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break its seals? And this is an, an important question. The question is not who is willing to open the scroll and to break its seals. The question is who is worthy? And of course, I think we know the answer. The one who has fulfilled the law and the prophets, he is worthy. The one who has paid for mankind with his blood, he is worthy. And so Jesus, the worthy one to open the, the scroll, but no one, verse three, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And because of that, verse four, John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Just a great sadness entered in to the mind and the heart. Of John. He just began to weep when he saw that no one was worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. This word speaks of a deep sorrow in the heart of John, that he was wailing aloud. It's not a private sorrow, but a very public sorrow. And I think that John was simply depressed at the thought of a world continuing on without ultimate redemption from Jesus. I mean, you think about what it would 
be like to say that the world is going to continue on and exist as it's been forever and ever and ever. I think, I think most of us would confess that that would be an impossibility. Eventually, eventually this world would self-destruct, whether it came through population explosion and overcrowding eventually, or the using up of all of our natural resources. I think we all understand that in one sense, we're trending downwards. But the other thing that causes us to trend downwards even worse than, you know, our natural resources and crowding and all of that is simply this, the evil and the wickedness inside the heart of mankind. We would eventually grow so corrupt that we would absolutely destroy one another. I think this is why God in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell, what did he do? He placed angels at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, lest man would go into the garden and eat of the tree of life. The worst thing that could have happened to man at that point in time would be to live forever in that fallen state. And I think that's what caused John to mourn. He had seen himself as a sojourner and as a pilgrim. He had set his heart, Psalm 84 verse 5, on pilgrimage. He had not loved the world or the things in the world. He had loved the Father. And he had set his mind on things which were above with Christ. And so to think of a day when the scroll could not be opened was an absolute horror to the mind and the heart of John. And he begins to weep. Let me ask you, O oh listener, are you in your heart grieved at the condition at the lostness, at the fallenness, at the depravity of the world in which you live. John very much was saddened by the world that he lived in and wanted to see it experience the redemption, the forgiveness, the grace of Jesus Christ. He began to weep because no one was found worthy. No one was found worthy. No other religion, no other approach, no other set of commandments. No one had kept the law. No one was worthy. And one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now this is absolutely beautiful. John now is told, of the one who would open the scroll and the one who was found worthy to loosen its seals. And the reason that Jesus was found worthy to loosen those seals is because it says there in verse 5, he has conquered. He had conquered sin. He had conquered death. Past tense. And because of that past tense victory, Jesus had won the future privilege of being able to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And you notice the titles that are given to Jesus here. First of all, he's called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Now, uh, the prophecies had foretold that the promised seed would flow from Adam to Seth to Noah to uh, Shem to Eber to uh, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob, of course, had 12 sons. And in at the end of the book of Genesis, we discover 
that the promise would come through the tribe of Judah. Okay, so he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It means he is of the appropriate seed and he is of the appropriate tribe. But a lion, oh, a lion. We love that picture of Christ. You know, a lion in scripture speaks of a couple of different things. It speaks of, uh, of course, just a sense of wrath for one, just the destruction and the danger uh, that is a lion. But it also speaks of royalty uh, in scripture. Solomon's throne had lions engraved upon it. In Proverbs 20, kings were compared to lions. So uh, royalty and position and also that wrath, as I mentioned, you know, portrayed throughout scripture as dreadful beasts that no one could hope to be uh, free or escape from. And the voice of the lion is, is dreaded and induces fear. Amos said in Amos chapter 3 verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? And so Jesus is spoken of as a lion. It speaks of his royalty, of his kingliness, and it speaks of the fact that he's dangerous. The wrath that is in Christ. And of course, that roar of that lion means different things to different characters. Uh, for the friends of the lion, it means protection. But for those who are the enemies of the lion, it means that the predator is near. And it's the same lion, it's the same lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is either a predator or a protector for you. And so the question is, what side of that coin are you on? I love receiving the protection, the grace, the strength from the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm so glad that I'm reconciled to him by his own blood. But then he's also called there in verse 5, the root of David. You see, years later, the promised line was whittled down even further. We went all the way back to Adam, but you had... Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. But you remember there was a moment in the history of Israel when David wanted to build a temple for God, a house for God, a permanent structure for God to dwell in. It was a noble idea, a noble thought, but David was a man of war. He had much blood on his hands. And so God told Nathan the prophet, he said, hey, tell David that that was a wonderful idea. Thank him on my behalf for his desire to build me a house. Politely decline. Tell him that his son can build me a house, but I will build him a house forever. And he will forever have a descendant, an ancestor to sit upon the throne. And everybody understood and it's reaffirmed all throughout scripture. And Peter, of course, reaffirms it in his message on the day of Pentecost. That Jesus is not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is the seed, the root of David. And he will sit and rule and reign forever and ever and ever to fulfill the promise that God made to King David. And the angel then told John, he said, he can, Jesus can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, verse 6, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, this is interesting. The angel had told John, he said, there is a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered and he will open the scroll and he will loose its seals. And so right away, we understand, of course, that Jesus is worthy and that he's the uh, lion. But when John looks upon him, he doesn't see a lion and he instead sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, of course, this brings us to the idea that in heaven for all of eternity, there will be a conscious understanding of and the actual uh, vision of, we'll actually be able to see with our own two eyes, the wounds that Christ suffered for us. In Zechariah 13, verse 6, they cry out to that coming Lord and say, What are these wounds between your arms? In other words, uh, for all of eternity, Jesus will bear the marks of payment for you and for me. And of course, this is how the lion prevailed. The lion did not prevail through sheer force. No, he prevailed by laying down his life. One day he will prevail for a second time through sheer force. But here, initially, Jesus suffered on the cross, laid down his life, and conquered by his blood. And so, of course, the picture of the lamb is a wonderful picture all throughout the Bible. It speaks in one sense of Jesus as the Passover lamb of God. You remember there in the Old Testament, in the nation of Egypt, when the people of Israel were going to be freed from their captivity, the final plague that would strike the Egyptian people was the angel of death. And God told the people of Israel and any Egyptian that would listen, that if they were to take the pure blood of a spotless lamb and place it upon the doorpost of their home on the designated night, the angel of death would pass over them and the firstborn child would not die. Jesus is a fulfillment of that very picture. Jesus is that Passover lamb who, as we receive his blood upon our doorpost, God passes over us and we live. But there's another picture. There are, of course, many in the Old Testament. But you might remember there in Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to himself. Now, when he went to Mount, I believe, Calvary to offer that sacrifice, he bound his son, he raised his knife in the air, and God said, Abraham, Abraham. Now I know that you're loyal to me. But you remember when they were climbing the mountain, Isaac looked at Abraham and he said, Father, the wood, Father, the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, Son, don't worry. God will provide for himself a lamb. And when God stopped Abraham from offering that sacrifice with his knife raised in the air, there was a ram, the text says, not a lamb, but a ram that was stuck in the thicket in the bushes. And Abraham went and offered that ram unto God. But Abraham had said God will provide himself a lamb, literally 
In one sense, you could take it, God will provide himself as the lamb. And so Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. And just as Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit in one sense, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity resting upon him during his eternal ministry, it says here in verse 6 that he had the seven horns with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he, verse 7, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is so fascinating to me that these elders come before the Lord. They come before the Lamb. They're holding a harp. They're about to play music and sing songs to him. But they're also holding these golden bowls full of incense, which are a symbol of the prayers of the saints. That says something to me of the, first of all, value that God places upon our prayers. That God would collect our prayers, that he would store our prayers. But it also speaks of the sweetness of our prayers in the sight and in the mind of God. It is like incense to him. Not only does he collect them, but as they ascend to him, they are incredibly beautiful in his sight. They're lovely to him. They are sweet to him. And I think that as a church and as God's people, we, we would do so well to remember and to know of the remarkable desire that God has for us as a people to cry out uh, to him, to be a people who pray. If you're involved in ministry, if you're serving the Lord in any capacity, I would simply encourage you to cultivate a life of prayer. Let God receive that incense. Let God store them in his bowls. Be a person who rises early, gets up early in the morning before others, seeks the Lord on your knees, gets before him, cries out to him. Let us be people such as this more and more until the day that he returns. Let us watch and be ready. And so he sees these golden bowls filled with the prayers of the saints. And they sang, verse 9, a new song, presumably playing, playing their harps. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is an absolutely beautiful song that the elders sing to Jesus, and it's basically a song about the worthiness of Christ. And they sing to him that, you know, you're worthy because you were slain. You are our substitute. You laid down your life for us. We should have been slain, but you allowed yourself to be slain. You ransomed us. You redeemed us. You bought us with that blood. And you've turned us now into a kingdom and a kingdom of priests serving you and loving you and 
and standing before you, and we will reign on the earth. But I love this little line there in verse 9 in the song where they say, from every tribe and language and people and nation. I think it speaks to us of the glory of God that he's always been really a missionary God. Now, of course, we understand that God selected Noah. He selected Shem. He selected Abraham. He selected the people of Israel. But the people of Israel and God's selected people have always been designed to be a blessing for the entire world. Isaiah 56 verse 7, the house of God was to be a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, Israel and of course now the church are called to be evangelistic in nature. Even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple to God, he prayed for the moment when a foreigner would come to be in their midst and bow before their God. And so God is a missionary God. God looks out on the world. He looks out on the nations. And he has a deep heart to reach every tribe and every tongue. People from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation, uh, it says there in their song, unto the Lord. And so uh, God has called us, of course, in this era to make disciples of all nations. And when you read Acts chapter 15, you see that God brought Peter, he brought the church, he brought the gospel to Cornelius' home in order to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, of which I am incredibly thankful. And so it speaks to us concerning the priority of God. And the question then would be, is the priority of God our priority? Is it the thing that we desire? Is it the thing that we are longing for? And so, you know, every tribe and language and people and nation, and I think we as a church and as a people would do well to continually set our hearts outward uh, towards the world in which we live and continually have a desire to plant churches, to see the gospel preached. I believe that the planting of, of churches is the greatest vehicle for the preaching of the gospel. Then he says, verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So just this huge throng of angels and living creatures saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Just the joy and the rejoicing in heaven, the loudness, the volume that we'll experience in worshiping the Lord, how incredible it will be. Now, we've seen heaven here in the book of Revelation. We've gone to the throne room of God. And next time in Revelation chapter 6, we're going to see the scrolls now begin to be loosed. The seals begin to be broken. And we're going to see a wild scene back down on earth. Join us next time. God bless you. 
and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.